Hi, my name is Jeff Redding. I'm a preaching elder here at Walton Community Church in Monroe, Georgia. Before we begin the sermon, our church would like to invite you to join us as we gather every Sunday morning for worship at 10 a.m. You can learn more about our church on our website at waltoncommunitychurch.org. Thanks for listening. Thank you, George. If you have your Bible, Hebrews 10, and uh, if I get the giggles, I'm trying to control myself. There's stuff that's falling off the back here, and I I looked over here, and Sam's busted out laughing. So, anyway, mighty fortress is our God, but I'm not sure how mighty that uh, cardboard fortress is behind me. All right. (laughs) By the way, did y'all see Jeopardy this week, this question about, they asked, the question was, in the Lord's Prayer, it says, it says, it was the word before, be thy name, you know, and it was, and nobody knew it, that it was hallowed be thy name, and I was thinking, I bet every kid in this church knows that it's hallowed be thy name, and not a single contestant on Jeopardy even tried to guess it. All right, so Hebrews 10, we're continuing our sermon series through the book of Hebrews. Today, we're going to look at Hebrews 10, verses 1 to 18. And the title of my sermon is Sanctification, so we're going to be looking at sanctification today. Uh, Just as a reminder, the author of Hebrews is writing to Jewish Christians who were suffering. They were being persecuted for their faith in Christ, and they were being pressured to go back to the old covenant sacrificial system, the priesthood and the temple and all that. And the author keeps reminding these Jewish Christians, he's, he's warning them, you better not turn away from Christ and go back to the old covenant system, because if you do that, you're you're turning away from God. You're not going to be saved. So the, the, throughout the book of Hebrews, the writer has been telling us that the old covenant was pointing forward to its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. So the tabernacle, sacrifices, priesthood, everything was pointing forward to Jesus Christ. And in Hebrews 10, he's actually going to review all that again. Okay, So he, he's going to do a lot of review. So almost everything I'm going to cover today has already been covered. So that's why I'm going to move through it pretty quickly but at the end I do want to spend some time thinking about sanctification spiritual growth because he talks about that in this passage all right so let's begin we're going to kind of take it in chunks we're going to start with verses 1 to 4 so this is Hebrews 10 1 to 4 and then we'll kind of quickly move through the passage all right Hebrews 10 1 to 4 it says for since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities It can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So in verse 1, the writer says the law was a shadow of the good things to come, the good things to come is namely Jesus. So the Old Testament law, as I said, the sacrificial system, everything was a shadow. It was foreshadowing, pointing to its fulfillment in Christ. So what he's saying is now that Christ has come, we fix our eyes on him. And I'm going to talk about that a lot. Fix our eyes on Jesus. We don't fix our, our eyes on the shadows. That was, there was a time and place for the old covenant. But he's saying, you Jewish believers, don't continue looking at the old covenant shadows. And then he makes this argument. He, he says that the animal sacrifices, he said you can even look at the old covenant system and see that the animal sacrifices could never make the worshiper perfect. He's talking about in the sight of God. 
So we've talked about this, but that word perfect, it comes from the Greek word telos, which means complete or reaching the goal or reaching the finish line, accomplishing the purpose. So he's saying the Old Testament sacrificial system could not make the worshipers perfect or complete in the sight of God. It could not accomplish the goal of bringing people into an intimate relationship with God. The ultimate goal, the ultimate purpose for each of our lives is to draw near to God, to be in a loving relationship with him. And the writer's saying that the sacrificial system could not accomplish this goal. And he's saying it could not, that's what he's, he's, he's talking about when he talks about the consciousness of sin there in verse 2. He's saying it, the, the, the Old Testament sacrificial system could not deliver people from the guilty feelings of their sin. Okay? So that's when he's mentioned the consciousness of sin. So the sacrificial system could not cleanse the conscience of the Old Testament worshipers. It could not give people assurance of forgiveness. In fact, it had the opposite effect. And he says that here. The repeated sacrifices actually reminded the people over and over again that they were sinners. So he says in verse 3, the sacrificial system reminded people that they were separated from God. So the writer's saying, look, he's saying, look, if the Old Testament sacrifices, those animal sacrifices, could actually take away sins, then why would it be necessary to repeat them over and over again? He said if, if they could have taken away sins, then the animal sacrifices would have stopped. But, but they didn't. They never stopped. All those animals were killed, millions of them, and it continuously happened. So he's saying this proves that they could not actually take away sins. That's what verse 4 says. So again, they were pointing to their fulfillment in Christ who offered his life as the ultimate sacrifice on the cross. And his life being laid down is the only thing that can take away sins. All right, verses 5 to 10. Let's read verses 5 to 10. It says, Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. He says, parenthetically, these are offered according to the law. Verse 9, then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. All right, this, when you first read through it, this can be complex, but it's actually super interesting. Verses 5 to 7, and your Bible probably shows this, verses 5 to 7 are set apart, and that's because it is a quote from Psalm 40. And what he is quoting is not the Hebrew text. He's actually quoting from the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which is called the Septuagint. So he's quoting from the Greek translation, and the Greek translation actually has a slight difference in verse 5 when it says, but a body have you prepared for me. I'm not going to get into it. It's actually really interesting. I'd encourage you, if, you, if you're interested, to study the difference because um, the body there in the Old Testament, it's, it's the word ear. But God even uses the difference in translation to, for his purposes. And it's a fascinating study, okay? I'm going to move on, but I would encourage you, if you're interested in translations and stuff, to get into that. I do want to mention this, though. So in this passage, it's really beautiful. There's a hint of the Trinity. 
God is three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And as I said, in verses 5 to 7, the writer is quoting Psalm 40. Well, in Psalm 40, David is speaking. But when David wrote Psalm 40, he was saying more than he realized. Because what the writer of Hebrews is telling us is that although David wrote Psalm 40, really what was happening is that Christ was speaking. Christ was speaking through David in Psalm 40. So what we're seeing here is the deity of Christ, that Christ is God, and that he was speaking through the writer David in the Old Testament. So what you're seeing here is the Trinity. And what Christ was saying in Psalm 40 is this. He was speaking to God the Father, and he was saying, Father, you don't take pleasure in animal sacrifices and offerings. He's saying what he means by that is when they're offered without faith. And the Bible teaches this over and over, that obedience and faith are better than sacrifices because God cares about the heart, not just going through the rituals. There's nothing wrong in the Old Covenant with sacrifices and offerings. God God set them up that way. But they were to be offered by people truly worshiping God with their hearts and minds. So just to go through the rituals, that wasn't pleasing to God. That's what it's being said here. It's the same for us, right? If we come to worship the Lord, we're not just supposed to show up at church and sit there and go through the motions. We come here to worship our Lord with love and with reverence and faith. He doesn't want us just to go through the motions. God wants us to praise him and exalt him in our hearts and with our minds. So here, Jesus was saying in Psalm 40 that he became a man. He took on flesh. So he has a physical body and he offered his life. He offered his body as a sacrifice in our place. That's what he did on the cross. And in verses 7 to 9, it's saying that basically that Jesus came to do the will of the Father. It was the will of the Father for Jesus to offer his body as a sacrifice for God's people. That was the will of the Father. And Jesus came to do the Father's will. If you you read the Gospels, during Jesus' earthly ministry, over and over again, he keeps saying that he came to do the will of his Father. Okay? So that's what this is saying here. In verse 9, when it says he does away with the first in order to establish the second, it means this, the first is referring to the Old Testament animal sacrifices. So in other words, Christ was saying in Psalm 40 that when he came, he laid down his life, he did away with the first, he did away with animal sacrifices. After Jesus died on the cross, he does away with that. So God intended for animal sacrifices to stop, to be abolished, okay? So that's what it means when he does away with the first. In order to establish the second, and the second is is talking about the will of God. He's he's referring to that statement, I've come to do your will. So Christ went to the cross in order to be obedient to God's will, and this abolished the Old Testament animal sacrifices. Then in verse 10, it says, And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. This is saying it's the will of God for us, his people, to be sanctified. Again, this is is talking about in God's sight. And notice it's past tense. So in the sight of God, we have been sanctified. We have been made holy because of the offering of Jesus' body when he died. And this was a once-for-all event. When Jesus laid down his life on the cross, it took away all the sins of all God's people, past, present, and future. In the sight of God for all time, 
Jesus' death worth both backwards to cover the sins of all the Old Testament saints and Jesus' death worked forward to cover all the sins of his people who would ever believe in him. It's really beautiful. All right, Hebrews 10, 11 to 14. And we may have a slide for this. I'm gonna start putting up slides and our guys do a great job every week putting up the slides. I'm very thankful for them. All right, this is 11 to 14. Says this, and every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices. Notice the tiredness. You kind of get this sense of the of the tiredness of the writer. He says, stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. Verse twelve. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So notice the contrast here. In the Old Testament system, the priests stood. There was no seats. We've talked about this. There was no seats in the temple or in the tabernacle. Why? Because they, they weren't allowed to sit down. Their work was never done. They stood up the whole time offering these sacrifices. And they were repeatedly offering these same sacrifices which could never take away sins. Contrast this with the fact that Jesus offered a single sacrifice, his own life, and he did it once. And then what did he do? What does verse 12 say? After he did this, what did Jesus do? He sat down. He sat down at the right hand of God. So Jesus offered the sacrifice of his own body, And he did that when he died on the cross. And then he was resurrected. He was raised from the dead. He ascended into heaven, bodily into heaven. He entered the throne room of heaven and he sat down on the throne at the right hand of the Father. And his sitting down is significant for two reasons. One, it shows his work is done. It's finished. That's why he cried out on the cross. It is finished. It's all done. All that sin. I hope we rejoice in that. All of our sins were taken care of at the cross. It's finished. And he sat down. Also, his sitting down in the throne room of God reveals his identity. In a palace, who's the only one who gets to sit down on the throne? The king. That's right. The king's the only one who gets to sit down on the throne. So this is showing, in an implicit way, that Jesus is a king. He's a king. And he's not only a king, right? He's the king. He's the king over all kings. And verse 13 says that Jesus is seated in the throne room of God, waiting until he conquers all his enemies. That's what it means when he says he's waiting until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. So Jesus is in heaven right now. He's in heaven right now, and one day he's going to return, and he's going to make all things right. But he's waiting to return until all his enemies are subdued under his feet. In other words... And I I think VBS is going to be talking about Jesus' kingdom, right? Jesus' kingdom is expanding. More and more people are brought into Jesus' kingdom every day. Every day, people joyfully come to faith in Christ, and they're ushered into his kingdom. Every day, there are people who are receiving Jesus' love and forgiveness, and they're joyfully confessing that he's Lord and King. And for those who refuse to bow the knee to him, those are his enemies, and he's going to conquer every single one of his enemies. And the last enemy to be defeated is death itself. So Jesus is waiting until all his people are brought into his kingdom, and then he's coming. And then verse 14, 
It's a fascinating verse. It says, this is where I want to talk about being, about sanctification. 14 says, for by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. This is the ESV translation. It's really good. The tense of this verse is really important. It's saying that Jesus offered his life on the cross. That was the single offering. And then it says, by his death, he has perfected for all time a group of people. Past tense. It's already done. The, the word perfected, again, this is this Greek word, telos. This is the same word. The writer of the Hebrews loves this word. So he's saying in the end, the purpose, the goal, is this is signifying completion. So when it says, for by a single offering, he has perfected for all time, this is talking about our standing with God. Or we could say, in the sight of God. So in, this is the gospel. In the sight of God, this is justification, okay? In the sight of God, there's a group of people who are already perfected. They're already complete in God's sight. This group of people have reached the telos, the goal of drawing near to God, of being in an intimate, loving relationship with him. So again, this is about forgiveness. This is about justification where God declares us to be righteous in his sight because of Jesus. Now, as God's people, we are not, in fact, perfectly righteous in this life. But because of Christ, in the sight of God, we are, cre- we are perfectly righteous because it's Jesus' righteousness that we're credited with. And that's the gospel, that's justification. Nick did a great job of preaching on that a couple of weeks ago. And notice, it, it's for all time. This is such a joy. It's for all time. It can never change. Those who are, are forgiven... Those who are in a loving relationship with God through Christ, that can never change. But also notice this, this is only for a particular group of people. This is not for everybody. Look at verse 14 again. It says, for by a single offering, he has perfected for all time, who? Everybody? No, not everybody. It's those who are being sanctified. Those who are in the process of becoming holy. What this means is those who are growing in faith and love, those who are growing in holiness. In other words, the only ones who are perfect in God's sight for all time are those who are growing in sanctification. And what this means is, what the Bible says repeatedly, is that people who have real faith in Jesus will be growing in holiness and love. We're not saved by our holiness. We're not saved by growing. But if you have real faith... You will be growing in love and in holiness. If a person has real faith in Christ, there's going to be spiritual growth. It's going to be there. Those who have genuine faith in Jesus will be growing in love and holiness. Now, it may come in fits and starts, right? It's, it's a, it's, a lot of times it's two steps forward and one step back. That's just the way it is. And a lot of times you'll look at your life and you'll feel like you're not having much growth. But over the course of time, for God's people, those who have genuine faith in Jesus will be growing in love and obedience and faith. All right, last section, verses 15 to 18. It says, And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Again, this is so beautiful. This is just in one chapter. This is another implicit teaching of the Trinity. I love this. 
This, is a, this, this quote in verses 16 and 17 is from Jeremiah 31. We've looked at this before about the new covenant. So the writer is saying that in Jeremiah 31, the Holy Spirit was talking. The Holy Spirit was, is bearing witness to us. And I think this is so interesting because in Jeremiah 31, it attributes it to Yahweh, to God. And here, the writer to the Hebrews is saying that the Holy Spirit was speaking in Jeremiah 31. So think about it. In, in this passage, we see in Psalm 40, in the Old Testament, Christ was speaking. And now here, the writer is saying that, it, that in Jeremiah, the Holy Spirit was speaking. In other words, Hebrews 10 is clearly teaching that God is triune. Three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God is Trinity. And all three members of the Trinity spoke in the Old Testament. They spoke through the writers of the Old Testament. And what is said here is that everyone in the new covenant will have God's law in their hearts and in their minds. New covenant people love God with their hearts and minds and they want to obey the Lord. God's word won't just be external, outward. No, for God's people in the new covenant, there is an internal love for God and his word. And God's the one who does it. He writes his word on our hearts and minds. He does the work. He is sovereign. And then we get this great promise of forgiveness in verses 17 and 18. God says, I will remember their sins no more. And we've talked about this before. God promises that on the day of judgment, he will not remember our sins. He will not bring up our sins again. Because Jesus has taken care of that. That's what it means in verse 18. Jesus has taken care of it. Because of his work on the cross, there's no longer any offering for sin. He's already made the final offering. Okay? Uh, And I will say this, if you're interested in chiasm, see if you can find a chiastic structure, if anybody knows what that is, in verses 14 to 18. Just uh, on the side, see if you can find it. Look for things like offering and forgiveness and sanctification, okay? That's just a little challenge to you. All right, that's the passage. For the rest of our time here, I want us to think about sanctification. That is growing in love and holiness and obedience, growing in grace and killing sin in our lives. Remember back in verse 14, it says, those who have been perfected in God's sight will be growing in sanctification. Those who truly belong to Christ will be growing spiritually. So we're going to talk about sanctification. The first question I want to ask is, why does it matter? Why does it matter? If we've been forgiven in Jesus, if we're saved, What does it matter if we actually grow in love and faith and obedience? See, God God seems to care a lot about us growing in holiness. Why? Well, this is a quote from a 1600s pastor named Thomas Traherne, and he's talking about the fact that God is love. And I think, yeah, we got this quote. I love this quote. I actually found this from C.S. Lewis in The Problem of Pain. He's... Traherne says this, that love can forbear and love can forgive, but love can never be reconciled to an unlovely object. He says, God can never, therefore, be reconciled to your sin because sin itself is incapable of being altered. But God may be reconciled to your person because that may be restored and loved. Now, this quote really hit me this week because what he's saying is just like love cannot be reconciled to something unlovely, God can't be reconciled to your sin. God can forgive us, but God can't be in fellowship with your sin. God can be reconciled to you as a person because of what Jesus has done. But for God to be reconciled to us, for God to be in fellowship with us, 
to be in close communion with us, he must change us. We must grow in holiness. We must grow in love and faith and obedience. We must grow in killing sin because God can't be reconciled to sin. He can't be in fellowship with our sin. And here's the thing. God loves us so much, he will not settle for us remaining in our same state of sin. He's determined to change us. He's determined to grow us in love and holiness. He's going to use his power and he's going to orchestrate circumstances in our lives to make sure that we grow. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. God is determined to make that happen. That's how much he loves his people. And that's why it's necessary for us to grow in holiness. Okay, so that's the why. The next question is this. In practical ways, how can we actually grow in holiness? How can we actually grow in love and obedience to the Lord? I'm going to just go through a few steps. First, identify the sin. Identify the sin in our lives. If we don't even take the time to identify the particular sins in our lives, then we won't be able to grow spiritually. A lot of Christians just kind of wander through life without making an effort to actually identify the particular sins in their lives. A lot of Christians will stay stuck in a pattern of sin and will give virtually no thought to it. But to grow in grace, we must identify the sins in our lives. So how do we do this? Well, part of it is self-examination. We're called to do that. We're we're called to take an honest look at ourselves. But really, I think the most important thing is to ask the Lord to reveal it to us. This is so important. This is Psalm 139, 23, and 24. I think we may have a slide for this. This Psalm 139, 23, and 24. Look Look what David says. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. David is asking God to identify the sins in his own life. And that's what we're called to do. We go to him and we ask him to search us and reveal any sin in us. We ask God to search out every part of our lives, every part of our hearts and minds to reveal to us the sin in our own lives. In other words, in other words, we give the Lord free reign to examine every part of our souls. As we've seen here in Hebrews 10, Jesus has died for us. We have forgiveness because of his sacrifice. That means we belong to him. And he has the right to examine every part of our lives. That means we keep nothing hidden from God. We give the Holy Spirit permission to examine every part of our lives. We give him the keys to every part of our souls. You see what I'm saying? We we give the Holy Spirit the keys to those locked areas of our lives. And we give the Holy Spirit a flashlight, right? We say, you're my God. I love you. You have free reign to go anywhere, everywhere in my life. We say to the Lord, we say, I invite you to look into every pantry, every closet, look into every drawer in my mind, go into the basement of my soul and examine me. Holy Spirit, I want you to take the flashlight and shine into all those places where I may be trying to keep things hidden from you. We invite the Lord to search us and to know our hearts. We have to give him the keys and a flashlight and tell him you have free reign to go everywhere and to reveal to me any grievous and sinful thing in me. Okay, so we identify the sin. We ask God to reveal the sins in our lives. And then after we identify the sin, what do we do? This is step two. We confess it. We confess it specifically as sin. We confess our sins directly to God. 
This is Psalm 32, 5. We may have this. Yeah, thanks, guys. David is talking to God, and he said, I acknowledged my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. He didn't cover it. He, he wanted God to see it. He said, I confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. We confess our sins to the Lord. And I want to encourage you to find a trusted friend as well that you can confess your sins to. James 5.16 says this, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. Find a trusted friend, a friend who can keep a secret, and confess your sins to your friend. So what we do, you, you, you take that hidden sin that's been locked up in the basement of your mind, your soul. You take that sin, you bring it out into the sunlight by confessing it to God and to a trusted friend. To, to grow in holiness and love, we've got to bring that sin into the light. What grows in the dark? You know what grows in the dark? Mold, right? Nasty stuff grows in the, in the dark. Toxic stuff grows in the dark. So we've got to get it out into the light. We confess it to God. We bring it into his sunlight. What, what, goes, what grows in the sunlight? Trees, bushes, fruits and vegetables, flowers, gardens. Beautiful things grow in the sunlight. So we confess our sin. We bring it out into the light. So we identify the sin Confess the sin is number two. And third is this. We turn away from it and we turn to the Lord. By God's grace and with his strength, we turn away from our sins. We repent, which means turning away, and we turn to Christ. Think about this. If sin is like a swamp, there can be a tendency. There can be a tendency for serious Christians. and this is, So one way is to turn away, and I'm talking about living a life for Christ. But there can also be a tendency to stay near the swamp of our sins. And what I mean by that is to, to stay near the, the, the stench of the filthy sin by keep looking at it. Some, some Christians can be ruled by shame and guilt, so they keep thinking about their sins. Other people can, can think that they're being very holy and pious if they keep fixating on their sin. So some Christians, even, even after confessing their sin, they keep thinking about their sin. And they keep feeling bad about their sin. They keep talking about their sin. They keep staring at it. If it's like a swamp, they keep breathing in the stench of their sin. Even if they have good motives, sometimes we can have a tendency to do that. Don't do that. It's actually very dangerous. Confess it, right? Bring it out in the light and then turn away from it. Get away from it. Don't keep looking at it. Don't keep breathing in the stench. Don't keep feeling bad about it. If you've confessed it, God has forgiven it, then move on. Don't keep confessing and thinking about it. Because if you remain standing by the swamp of your sin, here's what happens. You get used to the smell. You know that? You can stand almost anything. If you're around the smell long enough, you just kind of get used to it. And that is very, very dangerous. If you keep breathing in the stench of your sin, you can get accustomed to the bad smell. And what that does is that makes you more susceptible to other forms of sin because your conscience isn't bothered by it as much. Also, gardens don't grow in swamps, right? If you stay close to the swamp of your sin, if you keep confessing the same sins and you keep feeling bad about the same sins, what you're actually doing is staying near to the swamp of your sin. And if that happens, don't be surprised if you're not growing much spiritually because gardens can't grow in swamps. So what do we do? We confess our sin and then we turn away from it. And we stop feeling bad about it. We stop thinking about it. We get away from the swamp of our sin and we turn to Christ. We behold Jesus, who is the master gardener, right? He is tending the garden of our soul, and we fellowship with him. 
We worship him. At this point, I want to offer a little mild criticism. This is very mild of the book, The Mortification of Sin by John Owen. We're going through that in small groups. It's a great book. I want to say this. It's a great book, especially for hard-hearted people who have a difficult time seeing their own sin. So the mortification of sin is wonderful for those, for those folks. And at the end of the book, Owen does a fantastic job of pointing us to Jesus Christ and telling us to fix our eyes on him. So that part is wonderful. But in my view, Owen spends too much time staring at sin and breathing in the stench of our own sin. We're not told in Scripture to fix our eyes on sin. We're not told in Scriptures to continuously behold our sin. We're called to confess it, repent it, and then get away from it, right? Stop talking about it. Stop thinking about it. Stop feeling bad about it. Leave it alone. Instead, receive the Lord's forgiveness and move on to worship and serve our loving and gracious God. We actually try to teach this each week in our order of worship. I don't know if you've noticed this, but we confess our sins early in the service. And then what do we do? Do we spend the next hour groveling over our sin and remaining in the swamp of our sin? No. We confess our sins, and then we hear the gospel. We hear the good news of how Jesus loves us and how he's died for us. And then after we receive that forgiveness, we move on to worship and exalt him. That's what we need to do in our private lives as well. Confess our sin and then joyfully worship the Lord. So identify your sin, confess it, and then get away from it. (laughs) Stop thinking about it. Instead, behold the Lord Jesus. And this is how we grow in holiness and love. In 2 Corinthians 3.18, I think we have a slide. Yep, there it is. 2 Corinthians 3.18, Paul says this. Think about what he's saying here. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, what happens while we behold the glory of the Lord? Are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Think about this verse. How are we transformed? How do we grow in love and holiness? Not by staring at our sin and thinking about our sin. Not by feeling bad about our sin. No, we're transformed by beholding the glory of the Lord. There's something else I've noticed. There is a strong fleshly pull to turn away from Christ, and it's in all of us. And and here's the thing, too. It can be either liberal or conservative. The liberal way of turning away from Christ, what is it? It's acceptance of everything, right? It's welcoming of all lifestyles and sexual immorality and all that. It's never talking about sin, never talking about God's judgment. So that's the liberal way of turning away from Christ. But there's also a conservative way of turning away from Christ. Has anybody seen shiny, happy people? Anybody seen it? A couple of you? Okay. It's about the Duggar family and Bill Gothard and his ministry, okay? I, don't, there, there's a, I would say this. There's a lot of rough things in there. There's a lot of rough language, and there's things like sexual abuse, and many times it's hard to watch. But for I think for mature believers, I think it can be helpful because it reveals how conservatives can turn away from Jesus Christ. I knew almost nothing about Bill Gothard and the Duggar family, you know, that 19 and counting or 21 and counting, whatever it was. But I'd started doing a little research into Gothard's ministry, which is called IBLP, Institute in Basic Life Principles. I could talk a lot about the problems there, but ultimately, you know what it is? It's a turning away from Christ. It's all about rules and external behavior. 
and it lacks compassion and grace. And what it is, it's a breeding ground for fear and shame, and it's a breeding ground for filth and wickedness. They've turned away from Christ, they don't know his grace, and as a result, they can't extend grace. For them, obedience is driven by fear, and it produces not only a culture of legalism, but a culture of abuse and wickedness and filth. As I said, they have not experienced the grace of God in Christ, so they don't know how to extend grace. I could say a lot more, but I'll just say this. This is not just about Bill Garther or the Duggars or anything. Listen, any pastor or church or ministry that puts a heavy emphasis on anything other than Jesus if they're putting a heavy emphasis on things like authority or heavy-handed leadership or money or even good things like sexual purity and marriage and family, those are good things. But the emphasis has to be on Jesus. This is what the writer to the Hebrews is saying over and over again. For 10 chapters, he's been extolling how awesome Jesus is. And that's what we're called to do. The emphasis has to be on him. This is how we have intimacy and joy in the Lord. This is how freedom and joy is found. And this is how spiritual growth happens, by focusing on the Lord Jesus Christ. So there could be a tendency to turn liberal or conservative, but in both ways you can turn away from Christ. Now I'm just saying, if a pastor or church or ministry has their emphasis on anything that is not Jesus, on his work on the cross, if the emphasis is not on God and his word and on his holiness, but instead it's on other stuff, even good stuff, then my advice is, Get away from that church or pastor or ministry. And I can tell you this, my experience has been there's a lot of conservative Christians who get deceived by pastors and YouTubers who sound orthodox and may even be orthodox, I don't know, but they rarely talk about how awesome Jesus is. Listen, if the Lord Jesus is not the emphasis, then please stop watching those clowns, okay? Please. Because I promise you, if the focus is not on Christ and on his cross, then you will not experience real spiritual growth. You will not grow in freedom and joy in the Lord. And you may even, be, you may even find out that you've been deceived by the evil one, even by folks who look, look conservative. So again, stay away from those folks claiming to be Christians if they don't constantly exalt the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, we, we, we grow spiritually by beholding the glory of the Lord by thinking about his sacrifice on the cross, by how much he loves us. That's what the book of Hebrews is all about, by fixing our minds and hearts on Jesus Christ, about just just marinating in how awesome and glorious and gracious and loving he is. This is how we grow spiritually. I, I busted on John Owens a little about the mortification of sin, but as I said, the end of the book is actually fantastic because he keeps telling us to fix our minds on the Lord. So I want to encourage you to read and reread the very end of Mortification of Sin. Also, I want to end the sermon with a quote from that chapter. I think we got it. Listen to what Owen says. There are lots of great quotes in that chapter. But this one says, although my condition is really this bad, I should take heart. Because Jesus has unlimited grace in his heart and unlimited power in his hands. I'm going to close with this. We've been talking a lot about how God can't be reconciled to your sin. If you have not given your life to Jesus Christ, if you have not put your faith in him, I'm going to invite you to do that now. Because please understand that your sin is offensive to God. Even Even if the smell of your sin doesn't bother you anymore, understand your sin is offensive to God. And he can't be reconciled to your sin. 
Your sin is rebellion against God. It's so offensive to the Lord. It grieves the Holy Spirit. And yet, and yet, while we were still sinners, while we were still in rebellion against God, Christ died for us. He died for us because he loves us. So I invite you to put your faith in Jesus. Trust in Christ. Trust in the fact that his death has taken away your sins. Give up the controls of your life to Jesus and experience the joy of knowing that he loves you and he'll be with you forever. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we love you and praise you. Lord, thank you for your word. God, I thank you for the writer of Hebrews, whoever he is, Paul, Barnabas, whoever he is, I thank you for him and and Holy Spirit for guiding him and just constantly pointing us to how awesome Jesus is, our great high priest who offered his own life as a sacrifice. Jesus, you are glorious. You are amazing. You are here and you love us and I'm so thankful for that. And I pray that my friends here would turn away from whether it be liberal or conservative falling away from you, I pray that they would turn away from that mess and focus on you to behold you and your love and grace and power and forgiveness. And that's what brings about joy and freedom. It it kills shame and guilt and fear. It brings about transformation and then you get the glory. So I pray for that for my friends. We love you, Lord. Thank you for this time. Thank you for being here. We praise you. Be glorified in our lives. And for folks who have not put their faith in you, Lord, I pray that you would work in their heart. Please, Holy Spirit, work in their heart right now. Take away the blinders, break into stony hearts, and allow them just to see how awesome Jesus is. Holy Spirit, point people to Christ even now, we pray. And Jesus, we pray this in your name. Amen.